Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have around 6,000 members worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 22nd of September 2021. This is an additional episode of the podcast. On today's programme, I talk to author Andy Friend about his biography of British artist John Nash and his painting during the Great War. Andy spoke to me from Sussex. Andy, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in John Nash. Certainly, Tom. Well, uh, the interest in John Nash really emerged from prior venture, which was a, 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 an exhibition called Revillius and Co, The Pattern of Friendship, which was put on in 2017. And I'd come to that as an enthusiast for Revillius and began working with the Towner Gallery. That exhibition toured to Sheffield and Compton Verney over 20 20- People were, there were about 16 artists involved in that narrative, one of whom was John Nash. And uh, a number of people right from the off were saying, oh, this John Nash work's interesting. And uh, I guess one conversation led to another and gradually we realised that there had been no significant retrospective of John Northcott Nash who, uh, since his uh, death. In fact, since he was very much alive in 1987, when the Royal Academy put on a very substantial for then blockbuster exhibition. He then, of course, was still had 10 years of working practice ahead of him, but it, it surveyed a, a career of six decades in which he was a in oils and very fine watercolours, a wood engraver, a lithographer, a comic artist of, uh, of great finesse, uh, a wonderful botanic artist, arguably one of the, the best of the first half of the 20th century and into the, uh, into the 60s and 70s. So the, this year felt like the opportunity for addressing that. Of course, when we started planning it, we didn't know it would be our second pandemic summer. Um, but in fact, the theme, the landscape of love and solace is sort of feels very of the moment because Nash was an artist who uh, first and most obviously loved being in the English countryside. He was also a character who experienced more than his fair share of loss and trauma during a very long life in, in different forms, one of which was trauma was his uh, First World War experience, which we'll come on to talk about. Um, and he, um, uh, the solace, he, uh, in a sense, the wellspring of his art was escaping into the artistic uh, um, process in the face of nature and uh, losing something for him, himself, his own troubles in the wider natural order. And uh, so for those, for those reasons, it's felt uh, very on the moment. The landscape of love and solace also represents a sort of extraordinary set of both working relationships, but also um, uh, friendships and, uh, and affairs, because he and his wife, Christine Kulenthal, who he married shortly after coming back from the trenches, got engaged just before he went off to the trench. They had this extraordinary pact that if he survived that experience in France, um, they would marry, but they would have a completely open relation. And as um, John Nash's biographer, I can and Christine, 
2016 is a central part of the story, I can tell you. Having been through the evidence, this was not a, not a pledge entered into lightly, but it was carried through. Uh, I think the significant lover count was up in the high 20s for John and in the med medium teens for, for Christine by the time the research had finished. So I understand at the time of recording, which is September 2021, that you are currently involved in two exhibitions of Nash's work. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Okay, so so the exhibition here, which um, uh, the gallery is closed today, it's a Monday, tomorrow it will open again for the first of its last six days in Eastbourne, so we're talking today is the 20th of September, uh, in October, late October a selection of it will open at Compton Verney in Warwickshire and will be on display there until mid, mid to late January. Um, but the comprehensive exhibition here um, we'll come on to talk about the war art, but it's an exhibition that's been made possible by 26 public collections coming together, including uh, the Tate, the V&A, the British Museum, and uh, the Ashmolean and the Fitzwilliam in Oxford and, uh, and Cambridge, and of course the Imperial War Museum, who have uh, lent handsomely to um, uh, this exhibition. And also 37 private collectors have uh, contributed work. So it's a large exhibition covering that range of media I mentioned uh, um, uh, uh, earlier, and also including examples of uh, other artists from Walter Sickert, who was a very significant painter when John was just emerging onto the London art scene. Uh, he was part of a small group called the Cumberland Market Group at that time, picked up by older artists as an unknown who rapidly became known, uh, through to painters like Cedric Morris and Peter Coco, who he knew uh, in his 70s. Uh, and went painting with. So there are examples of their art, principally uh, amongst the 300 plus objects, uh, paintings and books and so on, uh, lithographs and posters in the exhibition. It's mainly John Nash and, and as I say, a comprehensive sort of survey of his life and work. So let's start with Nash's early life. Can you tell us about his childhood, family and education before the First World War? Yes, certainly. I mean, he was the middle child of three children, older brother Paul, um, uh, Paul Nash, a better known artist for many people uh, the, these days. In 1889, John was born in 1893, and his sister Barbara, four years later. They were the children of William and Caroline Nash. William, a long-serving but uh, not particularly successful um, uh, barrister at law, and Caroline, who came from the naval family. The great shadow over John's childhood was actually after his younger sister Barbara's birth, Caroline, who always an anxious character, developed significant mental health problems and disappeared into the world of private sanatoria. She actually attacked John with a knife, uh, and that was the trigger for her virtual disappearance from uh, the family for long periods. And um, she died in um, 2010, the, uh, in 1910, sorry. The, um, her illness and the need for care had cast a significant um, uh, shadow not over the, not only over the family but also had had uh, sort of degraded the, the, the household finances. So John was sent off to Wellington. 
um, and paid for by a, a, a relative for two years. And it was actually whilst he was there that his mother died. Um, I think he was uh, literally called in by the headmaster at the end of his first year and who said, by the way, your mother's died. Uh, whereas Paul, slightly older, was then at art school at Slade for 15 months. He was actually at his mother's bedside uh, when she died. And there's an interesting contrast in terms of their personalities in Anyway, Paul always more self-confident, better at self-promotion, uh, John more diffident and reticent. Paul always fascinated thereafter by what happens to the soul after death, the flight of the human soul, and uh, that is reflected in his art in the 20s and 30s. John in his life always in a sense searching for the absent woman, notwithstanding the very long um, and ultimately very successful partnership and marriage with Christine Coulomb. Um, so he um, left Wellington, the family didn't have the money to pay the premium that was required to get, you know, upper middle class kids into the sessions in those days. Um, uh, and so he literally took up what was effectively an unpaid internship on the local paper, the Bucks Advertiser. They provided him with no money but a bicycle. Uh, and he cycled around the countryside looking for stories for the paper. And all the time, his observation of rural things and the nooks and crannies of the English countryside coming into play coming into play and interacting with his comic sense because the earliest artwork we have um, from John are little marginal cartoons put into letters to his absent mother and sometimes his absent father when he was sent away to um, uh, stay with relatives, put into a muse. And um, Christine, when he met her, and she, they became lovers, sort of had it in one. She said, you're known as a humorist, but your humor is a useful cloak, isn't it? And I think there was a defensiveness about um, uh, John's early cartooning and comic uh, sensibility. But he also had seen the work of Edward Lear because Edward Lear had a long-term crush on his great aunt Gussie, never led to a, a full relationship, but it did lead to great aunt Gussie having a great deal of Edward Lear's art in her house, which saw as a young man. And there is a lovely cartoon here called An Accident. It's a direct a take, as it were, on a Lear illustration to one of his own limericks, which is an early John work. And gradually that comic sensibility, ability to cover, um, uh, draw figures in various situations and set them in scenes came together with his observation of rural matter and he began to produce some really wonderful watercolors completely untutored I mean John was somebody who was a great musician and an excellent gardener fantastic gardener and obviously a very good painter but never went to art school horticultural college or music college or not as a student anyway he taught one day a week over the years in some art colleges um, but so he was untutored, but Paul was at the Slade. Gradually, he got into that student network where he met Dora Carrington, a very famous young figure, woman figure of the time. Uh, they became friends. He would have liked to, uh, her to be his girlfriend, but she was actually interested in both other people and, and fundamentally more interested in her women friends than, than the pack of male, young male pursuers. Um, uh, and, uh, but that sort of got him in touch with 
the student art world. And then Paul, uh, and he organized what would now be called a pop-up exhibition in uh, an upscale lampshade shop next to South Kensington Tube Station in 1913. And they put they sort of hired two walls, put a sandwich board outside, of which we have the design here in the exhibition, um, and put up 25, 26 works split between the two of them. And Paul had already attracted the attention of a man um, called William Rothenstein, who was a sort of, uh, went on to be the principal of the Royal College of Art in the 1920s, but then was a sort of uh, all-purpose cultural man about town in the Edwardian era. He knew a lot of art collectors. He brought three of the foremost art collectors to that pop-up exhibition. It was only on for a week. Uh, they bought work, quite a lot of John's work included. Um, and so John went from standing start, never having sold anything, to actually having his work in three of the really leading private collections of the time. Um, but even more importantly, a, an artist called Spencer Gore came to visit the show. Spencer, one of life's diplomats, very good at um, smoothing over disputes between different fractions of the London art scene where there were vortices and futurists and neorealists and or etc. Spencer was just about to be elected um, uh, president of the newly formed London Group Exhibiting Society, which went on for many decades and uh, thereafter. And um, he, like John's work, within 10 weeks, he got John's work into a, an important show, survey of art in Brighton, one in Whitechapel, another in Leeds. And he introduced him to these friends who were of his, the other artists, Robert Bevan, Charles Ginner, uh, and Harold Gilman, who kind of took up um, uh, John and began to teach him some of the stuff he about oil painting and so on that he would have um, would have learned had he um, uh, gone to art school. But guess maybe we should talk, talk a little bit about the beginning of the First World War. So in that great jingoist wave when young men were joining up um, in August 1914, John tried to join up, but was rejected on medical grounds. Uh, brother Paul did join up, joined um, the London uh, artist Rifles. Um, and in um, those days, um, you will know more about this than I do, but, but uh, you could nominate at that point whether you were um, volunteering for home duties or, 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 or overseas service in the very early months of the war. Paul um, nominated uh, home duties, so he spent um, a bit of time guarding Richmond Park, um, a bit of time uh, uh, teaching map reading in Romford, etc. Was eventually commissioned, which I'll, I'll come on to, in 1917 into France but John uh, basically spent his the he did war work he was a special constable he he made bell tents and hammered rivets into canvas in a factory in Royal Park he was a clerk in the Ministry of Munich painting within sort of by night and by, by weekends um, until and uh, his his wife to be Christine Kuhlenthal who suffered from sort of anti-Hun feeling the family, although they were been living for donkey's years in Gerard's Cross, father of German emigre in the 1880s, mother of Scottish. Um, uh, she had been a student at the Slade, very fine painter herself. Um, and she visited the exhibition, the pop-up I told you about. In fact, 
John wrote to Dora Carrington and said, your friend, the doe-eyed Miss Kay. And then it's very interesting looking at the diaries, I mean, uh, and letters. They saw each other about every month for the following two or three years, came across each other in various things. But, but, and, and then suddenly, 10 weeks before the end of 19, uh, uh, before John uh, was um, going to go into barracks, he eventually decided conscription was coming, he would have another go, so he was accepted by the artist rifles as a private, just going in at that level. And he joined in November um, 1916. But 10 weeks before that, suddenly Christine and he start seeing each other every day. I mean, literally every day. I think there were three or four days, 10 weeks in which they weren't exploring the countryside together. They became lovers and made that pledge to each other I, I, I referred to earlier. John then went, so his war experience was, he was, uh, he was in barracks in East London. There was a draft which went out just at the beginning of November, first week in November. Um, to northern France. Uh, it was a terrible channel crossing and a prelude to a pretty grueling experience over the following 15 months, which began with sort of six months of being of a sort of military industrial workforce, you know, getting supplies from here to there, working on the railways, um, etc. Although he was in a unit which was a sort of nursery for potential officer commissions, he and had, and he who'd had a bit of a public school background, was sort of curiously overlooked. He became known as a good man, a section to, as a section leader. He was trained in the Mills bomb and, and, and other things like that, and then was gradually sort of worked his way out the front of the line. Um, and um, uh, he, the, his war, he was then in the front line at the Battle of Marcoing. And I will come on to talk about this experience in terms of the picture he created there. But it was um, uh, he was involved in a counterattack. The Germans had um, uh, attacked on the morning of December the 30th, 1917. They'd overrun the British front line. Um, so the second line was what was being defended. John had been resting in the reserve line with his mates, was rushed back into the battle. And uh, in the following, they were sent over the top immediately. They arrived in the second trench, and in the following 20 minutes, nearly everybody he was with was killed. Uh, he was very lucky to escape with his life. And he was then granted, he'd just been made a corporal, literally a couple of weeks before. He was granted uh, homely for two weeks, what he craved throughout that 14, 15 months in France. And he was sent home, and whilst he was at home, he... Um, uh, succeeded in being uh, appointed by the, the Department of Information, about to become the Ministry of Information, as uh, an, an official war artist. But that appointment coincided with the German Spring Offensive, and so the uh, war artists were no longer being sent back to France. So he was then, if you imagine the situation, it's a long, low agricultural building outside the village of Chalfont St. Peter, um, an abandoned herb drying shed, um, um, uh, in the middle week of June 1918, he is moving his painting things into uh, one end of the herb shed uh, because he is required now for six months by the ministry to, uh, uh, under what was called a whole output contract, everything he did was to go 
go to the crown and the government and artists employed on that basis really it became the genesis of the imperial war museum collection uh, but he had to do it all by recall because he had been forbidden to draw in the trenches positively forbidden to draw while so he brought back no sketchbooks no works in progress and all he had was a few marginal drawings in letters not this time to his parents the drawings he'd done in St. Christine back uh, so they recorded in sort of almost comic terms some trench um, uh, life realities and the first drawing he did that um, in the middle of June it's a little watercolor we have here in the gallery it shows four men in a uh, shell out in a snowbound and it is the situation he was in the week before that over the top experience for three nights running up leading up to Christmas 1917 he was sent out leading a party of four to an advanced post uh, to watch for sudden um, uh, attacks. And this little watercolor shows these four figures, two awake looking out um, towards the unseen enemy, two hunkered down trying to um, uh, get a, a bit of rest. And there is a very direct connection between that watercolor and his situation as an official war artist, because from there, he wrote what was to become his last letter to Christine from France. He didn't know it at the time, uh, but it was a Christmas letter. And he enclosed a scrap of paper in it, um, which was from a notebook, um, uncharacteristically jittery writing in pencil from John slantwise across the page. You can almost feel the cold coming off this bit of paper. It's in the Imperial War Museum archives. And it is a to whom it may concern letter uh, addressed to the Ministry of Information. Um, I hear you're about to appoint war artists. Could you please... Um, uh, uh, consider me. I've been in the front line 15 months. I know of stuff in brackets, you know, and I will do some authentic work. Uh, and they did um, appoint him. Uh, and then the next thing he did after that was a painting, which I'm actually looking at now as I talk to you, called of Highway simple fresco-like in its impact. It shows six Tommies marching along a road. It memorializes the first way station of his military experience. After that channel crossing, he had a 30 mile march in the rain with the, um, the, the other members of that draft. There are two French officers, long sweeping blue coat cloaks on horseback, just angled away in the background, a broken building and a gray sort of sky uh, uh, with the wind blown cloud. And it's very interesting because contrasting works that artists like Nevinson and his own brother Paul Nash had done, which were sort of Cubo-futurist in, in their sort of composition and really gave the message, you know, in the darkness and chaos of war, the individual is barely uh, distinguishable from the mass, the mass, you know, human material. Um, this painting kind of draws you in because there are just these six guys marching and they're all in a way locked in their own thoughts and you begin to think about what was the reality of life for these people. And he went on over the succeeding months to do uh, a painting uh, called uh, The Bridge Over the Arras Lens Railway, which was about his time working on the railways and a number of other ones that you can relate back to the specifics of his career in the artist. 
rifle. And then in August 1918, in that herb shed, he does a painting um, which many of your listeners may know, which is called The Painter Top, First Artist Rifle. And it is, a, it is an extraordinary work in which every element of the design captures a sense of unfolding tragedy. It's him memorializing the people uh, he knew who are now dead. Um, there are 16 figures, key figures in the in in this painting: the brown gash of the earth, the trench, the white snowbound um, uh, um, no man's land. Uh, two uh, guys are already dead, and shot and fallen back the trench. Others are clambering. A couple had bullets. Their body is there, about to die. Others are looking forward as they march uh, march out into uh, no man's land with a sense of sort of fatalism uh, uh, built um, in into their postures. And um, it's got a very restrained pallor of um, the brown and the white, a little like a Bruegel snow scene, but a very different subject. Uh, a low horizon, a broiling sky, a yellow gas cloud, um, uh, an extraordinary painting, which when it was exhibited in after the war in um, December uh, 1919 at Burlington House, um, was the sort of signature cover image of that ex great exhibition of war art. Um, and was also the painting that um, those who knew the kind of sorrow and pity of the Western Front really responded to for its author. Um, and it was amusing, he, he, in one sense, he writes, having done this painting, he writes to his handler um, in the uh, ministry, and he says, I've done this painting, John, diffident as ever. I've done this painting I think you may like of a counteract. And the handler writes back and says, yes, yes, yes. When are you going to do the big one? And uh, you should be getting on with that. And they were all these artists. Paul included, um, were being employed uh, on this whole output contract, but within that they had to do one major painting that was intended to go in a memorial hall after the war, a memorial hall that was never built, but those paintings survive and are the jewels in the crown of the First World War art collection for the UK. And so the extraordinary thing to think about is that while John was sizing up what he was going to do on his major canvas, one end of this herb shed, this agricultural building, Paul had moved in at the other end and was painting a painting called The Men in Row. Um, and that came out of his experience, last experience. So just back to Paul's war experience. As I said, he was on home duties at first, then Guinea 1917, uh, such is the attrition rate that all of those people are being sent out of the commissioned office um, to uh, the various fronts, France and elsewhere. He nearly goes to Mesopotamia, but the, um, he has an illness and get, lands up in the Ypres salient for 12 weeks and then has um, what is uh, could happen to any of us, a back accident. He steps back in the trench, jars his back, hurts his ribs and is sent out of the front line. And because the British authorities were clearing the base, the field and base hospitals that week, because of an upcoming offensive in which they anticipate tens of thousands of casualties. He was gradually sent back step by step because of this bad back and landed up in the Swedish hospital in Marlborough with about 40 sketches he had because his, uh, his commanding officer had certified they were of no 
non-military importance. So complete contrast with John, forbidden to draw as a private, this officer was allowed to draw and take his work back. He then, while he was in the hospital, worked these up and they became the basis of a, an exhibition in the Leicester Galleries in the middle of London, which really introduced the style of war art for which Paul Nash is now um, best known. It him up as a war art. So John's still out in France at this point, obviously. Um, but, and uh, Paul is commissioned as a war artist. And then in November, uh, so before the Battle of Marcoing, before John lands up at Cambrai, goes back to France. And he actually finds John there in his third or fourth day back in France. But Paul, unlike John, has been equipped with a car, a chauffeur, a batman, and a cook with which to tour the battle. And so he does the sketches, become the men in road. And the men in road, for those of you who know it, it's a long painting. It is a Dante-esque vision of hell in which the very clouds and the sky and the universe has turned entirely evil and is party to the sort of putrid destruction we see before us, the standing water, the tiny little human figures, um, the sense of uh, malevolence has overcome the natural world. John, by contrast, who always had an enormous faith in the ultimate benignity of the natural order, does a painting called and it is a painting which he sets, it's Oppywood was where he first went into the front line to be sort of blooded to see if he was windy. He sets this painting at the, uh, the first early evening hours, which in the trenches, I'm told, were more tended to be more relaxed than either twilight or dawn, the hours before dawn, both of which the potential harbingers of a sudden attack. So the sun is behind us as the viewer. We're looking at these trenches. There are two guys looking out, yes, over a broken landscape, pitted with shell holes and so on, and there's a wood and a, the remains of construction to the right. Um, but behind that is this absolutely wonderful blue uh, sky with these high scoring clouds arching in from either side, which are, some of our visitors to the exhibition said they're like angels, and they are. They're like uh, uh, an element of a Renaissance uh, altarpiece. And it really gives an entirely different message, you know, uh, that there are the music of the spheres. It's not religious in a conventional sense, but it is spiritual to the extent that it is suggesting a natural order different from and removed from the madness of war that we see unfolding before us in the sort of foreground and the middle ground. And that sense of the benignity of nature was also, I mean, so John and Paul, they're in the herb shed, they're there for several months, they are getting pretty bloody down brooding on what is still going on in France. I mean, uh, at that uh, summer of 1918. And they make a little local variation to their contract, which is that, um, um, which they don't inform the ministry about, but which they say that after 6.30 in the evening, we've done our time for the crown, we will go out into the English countryside and paint the sort of stuff we were painting before the war and which we want to do after the war. And about 500 yards behind where the herb shed was, it no longer exists, one can walk into the fields and find the site of one of the most famous uh, 20th century landscapes in the Tate collection. It's called the Cornfield, uh, set at sunset like um, Oppie Wood, the low sun slanting through a, a gap in the tree line across a recently harvested field with corn stooks in um, the foreground. It is a sort of hymn 
him to the fecundity of nature. And um, John said, I painted it in sheer relief at being still alive and back in the English. So it was kind of like a coda to his war work, but extraordinary to think about that while he was painting over the top, this kind of him, this sort of um, uh, purging of the, not an entire purging, because all his life he thought it was sheer bloody murder, what happened that day, December, but it is a, a memorializing of his fallen comrade and a tragic and in a sense a bitter work, but at the same time on an easel next door to this he is painting, it's an, an extraordinary contrast between the two works created at the same time. I've been talking with uh, uh, out pausing Tom for a while. Do you want to ask me another question or are we running out of time? I think we're running out of time. I think that's pretty well covered everything I need and that's fine. I'm just going to do something. So where can people learn more about your work and see the John Nash uh, exhibition and where should they go if they're listening to, to this podcast after January 2022? Oh, oh uh, okay. So, um, first of all, I mean, the, what I've been talking from, in a sense, is a research base that is captured in uh, my biography of John Nash, um, where you'll find a lot more about some people I've, I've referred to, as well as it's got the same title as the exhibition. It was meant to come out at the same time, but pandemic realities, it came out last year from Jensen Hudson, and uh, 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 the exhibition has been this year. Um, so, um, where, I mean, John, the works that are here, and most of which are going to Compton Verney are from the First World War that I've been talking about, um, save and except for uh, the Cornfield, which is in the Tate collection normally, are in the Imperial War uh, um, uh, collection. And he was a, briefly a war artist in the Second World War for six months. He didn't like it that much because he didn't like being a spectator, having been a participant. He actually said, um, he writes to his friend Eric Revilius and he says, I don't see why artists should expect other people to do their fighting for them. And he gets transferred in the 1940s into the regular forces um, uh, as an expert in camouflage and deception. Um, and so there are works from the Second World War also in the Imperial War Museum collection, a different experience. And one of the interesting things that we found out in the research of the exhibition in the Second World War is that John had a significant part to play in Operation Fortitude South, which was a, 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 a subplot of Operation Overlord and the D-Day landings. Fortitude South was about creating deception in both in the cyber world and the real world um, of uh, um, uh, inflatable landing craft, etc., up and down the south coast to trick the Germans into thinking the real invasion would come across the part of uh, Calais and was not the D-Day landings. Very successful a bit of subterfuge actually so John was involved in that and so people who are particularly interested in the Western Front or the war aspects of his career the IWM is a key place I cover it as much as I can in that book um, and uh, sorry your other question was about the exhibition that what is going from here to Convernium will be available up until uh, mid late January uh, 2022 is a selection of um, what is here, um, which covers many of the things we haven't had time to talk about today, Tom, like his marvelous wood engraving, his botanical works, uh, the other tragedies that befell him and Christine, they lost their only child, age four and a half, the result of an accident. But that led on to other things um, uh, in their lives, um, which are reflect. Andrew, thank you very much for your time. That's great. 
You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>